Welcome to this podcast from the National Humanities Center. I'm Tanya Muntz, Vice President for Scholarly Programs, and your host for this episode. In the 17th century, the notion of an infinite universe was so controversial that those who believed in it could be burned at the stake. Yet today, the concept of infinity is commonplace. It's integrated not only into our science and math curricula, but also part of how we understand our world. Today, we're talking with John Smith, professor of German at the University of California, Irvine. This year, as a fellow at the center, John is working on a new project examining how the concept of infinity not only gained acceptance, but reshaped our thinking in the seemingly disparate realms of mathematics, theology, philosophy, and poetry. Thank you, John, for joining us. Thank you for having me. Your study begins with a discussion of Giordano Bruno, and that's what I allude to in my introduction. He was a Dominican friar who was burned at the stake in 1600 for his heretical beliefs. And those included a conviction that the universe was infinite. Can you talk to us a little bit about why this would have been considered so threatening that somebody would lose their life over it? Well, at the time, um, and that was in the end of the 16th century, um, Giordano Bruno came up with this idea that um, the universe was infinite, contained an infinite number of worlds. And if that's the case, then that was a challenge to some of the major beliefs of the Catholic Church. First of all, you can imagine if the universe is truly infinite, then one could ask the question, where is God? If God is a creator of the universe, one would envision God to be, in some sense, outside of it as its creator. But if the universe is truly infinite, then there's no place for God. Secondly, um, this was also the period when people were concerned about challenges to the uh, geocentric notion of the solar system, that the Earth is the center of the universe. Well, if the universe is truly infinite, then one can't envision that there is really any place for a center. Every point in an infinite universe would be equally valid. So it challenged that idea as well. So your study focuses largely on the German context, and you start us off in 1675 with Leibniz's discovery of the calculus. And as you write, that was largely a mathematical innovation. But what did Leibniz do, and what were its broader implications beyond mathematics? First of all, around 1675, the calculus, which was probably the most powerful mathematical tool that was discovered after Euclid's geometry um, with the ancient Greeks. Um, when in 16, around 70, 1675, when calculus was discovered, it was discovered simultaneously, pretty much, by Leibniz and Newton. Um, there's a lot of dispute whether or not Leibniz cribbed it from Newton, and there were huge debates at the time. Um, but uh, I'm not interested in that, in that issue. A lot of historians of mathematics have pursued that. But I am interested in Leibniz a little bit as opposed to Newton and the German tradition as opposed to the British tradition, one, because I am a German scholar, so I know it much better, but also because there's a real difference in the two traditions. The British tradition tended to be very empirically oriented, whereas the German tradition was really fascinated by the combination of the transcendental and the empirical, the real and the ideal. And Leibniz really stressed this because the notion of calculus used at the time a notion of the infinitesimal, that is, the infinitely small. And it was able to calculate with that and was, as I said, extremely powerful. But no one quite knew just what an infinitesimal was. Um, what is a number that is infinitesimally small? Is it even a number or is it nothing? Leibniz called this a necessary fiction. And 
for the period that I'm looking at, which is the long 18th century, mathematicians and philosophers and others really debated this point. And it was kind of an embarrassment for mathematics that it worked extremely well, but it worked on the basis of a kind of trick. And so I'm interested in, in this period, and in, I start off with Leibniz, because he really raises this issue of it, whether or not mathematics is based on something which is very real, because it works in the real world, or is it based on something that's ideal? And it's not just an empirical tradition. So let's talk a bit about that sort of end of the 18th century, turn of the 19th century. And it's not just the idea, right? People are still actually dealing with Leibniz himself. And your study tells a reception story of Leibniz at that time, 125 years after he's come up with calculus. Well, the, I think there, there are two parts to my story um, as a reception. The first is the earlier part of the 18th century, and this is where two developments take place um, that are connected. And the one is a development in theology that's called physico-theology. And that was a move in theology that celebrated God in every aspect of his creation. So one of the aspects of physical theology was astrotheology, for example, where people looked up and the telescope had been invented. They looked up to the heavens and they had Newton's and Kepler's laws that explained the motions of the planets. And they said, that's wondrous. We can see the workings of God in the order of the universe. But what's really fascinating is that this theology also started to celebrate God in the wonders of his creation, even in small things. So there were volumes that wrote about flowers and grasses and bugs and the wonders of all these little things that God created um, and that God was present in each one somehow. Well, that's a big change because what that does is it suddenly makes the divine present in the world. And that's a move towards making the infinite present in the finite world. One of the responses to that theology, especially in Germany, were volumes and volumes of religious poetry. Um, there's one poet named Heinrich Brockes who wrote, a, who wrote nine thick volumes of poems, and I, I don't think I'm gonna get through all of them, but he wrote nine thick volumes of poems called The Earthly Pleasure in God. And in these poems, he's got poems about, wonderful poems, which are descriptions of, say, a fly, or a drop of water, or cherry blossoms at night. And he describes these things with wonderful, beautiful detail. And they usually end with saying, and so in this beautiful thing, it could be the, the shiny blue of a fly's wing, for example. There, too, we see God. And again, this brings then the infinite down into the finite world. So that's what takes place in the first half of, or so of, this, of the 18th century. By the end of the 18th century, you have then the movement of Romanticism. And that takes this celebration of the infinite in the finite world to the extreme. So we can think of William Blake, for example, in the British tradition, who celebrates God and the universe in a grain of sand. And the German Romantics also celebrate this. 
And it's not by chance that there was also a revival of interest in Leibniz at the end of this time, because they were looking back to Leibniz, who also, in a way, through his mathematics, they weren't so much interested in his mathematics per se, although some of them were, um, but it was in his mathematics and his, in his metaphysics that he also celebrated, in his own way, the infinite in the finite world. Over the course of the long 18th century, the Enlightenment really that you look at, you talk about how the idea of the infinite becomes what you call normalized. What do you mean by the term and how does this happen? The term normalized, I use, it comes from the theory of Thomas S. Kuhn, um, who in the 1960s wrote a very famous book, um, a book that really I would almost want to say changed my life when I was in college. Uh, it's called The Structure of Scientific Revolutions. And his main argument there is that science doesn't just develop by accruing more and more facts and the theories get bigger and bigger until we would eventually have a theory of everything. Instead, science develops by what he calls revolutions. And his theory is, is disputed, certainly, among historians of science, but it's still very interesting. A revolution takes place when a theory um, which has gained acceptance, and he calls that a normal science, because science are working, doing their day-to-day -day work, exploring the facts of this theory. When that normal theory encounters, a normal scientific theory encounters anomalies. These are things that are sort of peculiar, scientists can't quite explain them. Well, scientists don't just immediately abandon their theories and say, oh my god, we've encountered an anomaly. Instead, what they do is they try to tweak their theory. They improve their instruments. They make more precise uh, studies of things. And that's a good thing, because that means that they get more and more precise, and they build better microscopes and better telescopes. But if their anomalies continue, it becomes a problem for those scientists working in that paradigm. But they don't just change their paradigm. They don't drop it. They stick with it as long as they can until what he says is a revolutionary science comes along with an entirely new paradigm. And the question is then, how does one, how do scientists jump from one paradigm to the other? He calls that a, a leap from one paradigm to the other, or it's a revolution. And I'm interested in the way this anomaly, we could say, of the infinite that developed in the late 17th century, the way that anomaly then came to be widely accepted uh, throughout this long 18th century, and I'm exploring that process. Hegel, in A Science of Logic, addresses the what he calls persistent embarrassment that mathematics doesn't properly understand the infinite, that it's not on firm philosophical ground, and still he uses it. What kind of work does that do for him? Why does he allow this embarrassment within his philosophy? Well, I think Hegel says the embarrassment is out there in mathematics, and Hegel says... What I am going to try to do is give you a philosophical explanation of uh, what is behind this embarrassment and thereby, so to speak, solve the problem for the mathematicians. Now, if we want to take a step back and think about Hegel, we can say that Hegel is a philosopher who views all of being as becoming. Everything for Hegel is always in the process of becoming. That means, in his terms, it's always a constant change where something transitions into nothing, and then that nothing transitions into something else. 
And so Hegel sees this world of change that I mentioned arose in the late 17th century. He sees that as the very nature of all of being itself. Now, if you think about it and asks of the question, when does something stop being what it is and become something else? At what point does that happen? Is there a leap? Well, we tend to think, well, no, it's, it continues being what it is, and, and then all of a sudden it's something else. But the point between those two is how big? Infinitesimal. Smaller and smaller and smaller. So Hegel says he can help if you look at the world as essentially a world of becoming, where things go from being into nothing and nothing into being. Hegel says that can be a way of understanding the nature of the world which is behind the mathematics of the infinitesimal. And that's why mathematics of the infinitesimal can explain the nature of change in the world. So Hegel says that it is an embarrassment for mathematicians, but he is going to try to give an explanation that will solve or, or overcome that embarrassment. And it's interesting that in his Science of Logic, which he wrote in 1816, it's written as in a series of paragraphs, and then often there are little remarks that he makes um, after the paragraph. So we might have a remark that will talk about another philosopher and how another philosopher might have dealt with the same problem. And they're, they're usually the remarks, but two or three pages. And at one point, then, there is a remark that is some 45 pages long. It's the longest comment by far of any in the entire science of logic. And what does he deal with in that comment? Calculus. So it's, it, we have to explain why Hegel would be drawn to this concept when, and this, this, this area of mathematics, and why then this area of mathematics uh, would be explained by Hegel's logic. And that becomes, the, the, so to speak, the logical culminating point for my work, because I think Hegel really tries to bring then this notion of the infinitesimal to philosophical clarity. What's the status of the infinite in contemporary scholarship? Right now, the, the infinite is a very hot topic in contemporary French philosophy, for example. The philosopher Gilles Deleuze uh, had uh, published a book a number of years ago on Leibniz, where he also talks about the notion of the differential or the infinitesimally small, because he is also interested in a world which is constantly changing and becoming. So it's not by chance that he would turn to that. Um, the contemporary French philosopher Alain Badiou, um, who many consider the greatest living French philosopher um, or one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th and early 21st century, and that, that may be the case. I, I have certain hesitations. Uh, he is, in many ways, a philosopher also of the infinite, as is one of his students, Quentin uh, Meillassou, who wrote a book called After Finitude. Now, why are they all so fascinated? Why are they emphasizing the notion of the infinite all of a sudden? Well, they're doing it almost for opposite reasons than um, they're interested in it actually as a, as a challenge to religion. What they fear is that modern philosophy has a view of reason that is focused on the finite world alone which then leaves the realm of the infinite, the realm of that which is beyond us, beyond comprehension. And for them, that opens it up to irrationalisms 
and a kind of blind faith that cannot be guided by reason. So for them, it's very important to bring back a notion that reason can grapple with the infinite. For Badiou, this means also mathematically. Uh, he has written very much about Hegel. He has to <laughs> engage with Hegel a lot. Uh, he's more interested in the late 19th century and the philosopher Georg Cantor, who developed set theory and uh, different notions of the infinite, which is very, very fascinating. But the infinite is uh, a hot topic, again, also in contemporary French philosophy. And part of my project is to engage that contemporary thought as well. In your conclusion or in your epilogue, you make a larger point and you talk about the two cultures. And in your work, very strongly, you talk about natural science, you talk about philosophy, literature, art. What do you want your readers to take away about the status of the two cultures and that concept more broadly? I think there, there are two sides to that question. The one is historical. Uh, I think it's important to see that as we look back over history, it's too simplistic to separate out these two cultures of the natural sciences and the humanities, say. Um, that if we actually look at history, and this is where Kuhn, again, is very useful, if we actually look at history, we see a different story. We see that these two cultures are, have always been intertwined. They've always been influencing each other. This development in mathematics helped to generate volumes of religious poetry, in fact. And conversely, those volumes of religious poetry helped lay the foundation for the acceptance of those mathematical ideas um, some 50 years later. So historically, the two are intertwined. But the argument I want to make is not just historical. I think for us today as well, we have, we live in a society in which the humanities are largely um, feel, to men, uh, and I think they are in many ways under threat. And the sciences tend to be getting a lot more funding, for example. They tend to get more support. And I think at this time, it's important for the humanities also to remind the sciences that we are not two separate cultures, that we are interconnected, and that we do mutually influence each other. And finally, also today, I think there is, we could be even in a more drastic time when both the sciences and the humanities are being challenged. And so now more than ever, the two cultures need to work together, actually. Thank you, John, for joining us today. Thank you. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Please join us again for our next podcast from the National Humanities Center.